Healthy Dialogue, the podcast of the Alliance of Community Health Plans. Here's your host, ACHB CEO, Cece Connolly. When the idea of a podcast first came up at ACHP, we knew nothing of this novel coronavirus. It was January, January 21st to be exact, and I'd be lying if I said this podcast idea hadn't been through dozens of iterations since then. Listen, I'm not going to start off our relationship by lying to you. Like everyone else, we've bobbed and weaved through pandemic news cycles, and we wanted to make sure that if we went forward with the Healthy Dialogue podcast, we'd have something new to add to what has already been an exhausting conversation. So yeah, January was a lifetime ago, and you don't need me to catch you up on everything that's happened in public health in the last eight months. Sure, the former Washington Post journalist and me wants to do that, but I know that you know what's been happening. That being said, I think there's one thing I can tell you that maybe you haven't heard much about. There's one thing about this wretched, relentless pandemic this public health crisis that has tested every aspect of our lives, our mental durability, and our health system. There's one thing that I don't think you've gotten a deep dive into, and it's this. There actually is some good news to be had in the last eight months. No, really. As the saying goes, if necessity is the mother of invention, this crisis has produced plenty of invention in the healthcare system. All sorts of innovations that might have taken years without the fierce urgency of now. So we're going to take inventory of some of those innovations in this inaugural episode of Healthy Dialogue. And we'll talk about some of the systemic obstacles in our healthcare system that are blocking even better ideas. In just a couple minutes, we'll be talking with author and physician Vivian Lee, whose new book, The Long Fix, throws a dart at the bullseye of a dysfunctional payment system in American healthcare. Happily, she proposes a long-term framework for fixing it. Thus, the long fix. I want to make one promise to you from the get-go. Healthy Dialogue is not going to be one great big infomercial for the Alliance of Community Health Plans. But I do want to take a minute to introduce you to ACHP so you understand the unique perspective we bring to the national conversation on healthcare. It's hard to believe, but I'm now closing in on five years as the CEO of ACHP. I came here in large part because I fell in love with the unique business model of our member companies. Number one, they're all nonprofit. Number two, they're rooted in their communities. Most importantly, number three, the insurance side and the clinical side are aligned for better care delivery at an affordable price. There's something else that's pretty cool and unfortunately pretty rare about our members. Their size and their ties to their communities allow them to be more nimble than a lot of the big national behemoths. If our members have a good idea, they can test it and get it to market quickly. During most of our country's history, being nimble and inventive at least in healthcare, has been, shall we say, optional. But during this pandemic, it's become mandatory, not just for maintaining public health and safety, but for organizational survival. 
segment, which we call This is Cool, I want to share with you a handful of these innovations that may have never happened, or at least not for a long while, had we not encountered a novel coronavirus. So think for a minute. Marshfield Clinic Health System in Wisconsin launched an iPad donation program where used iPads are collected in the community and distributed to patients suffering from social isolation, where there's health partners who, working with researchers at the University of Minnesota, teamed up with developers to create a mobile app that shares data about the health of a user's neighborhood, helping them avoid potential COVID-19 hotspots. And in Pennsylvania, Geisinger Health Plan developed a chat bot to quickly and efficiently triage and screen patients from the safety of their homes, both keeping costs down and risk low. So these are just a few of the many examples, but you get the idea. And that's what I mean when I say that there actually is some good news to be had in this terrible public health crisis. And now, today's Healthy Dialogue. Okay, so if healthcare organizations can respond that quickly when the need arises, imagine what we could do if the system just got out of its own way. I am beyond excited to welcome our first Healthy Dialogue guest, Dr. Vivian Lee. Vivian is president of Health Platforms at Verily Life Sciences and senior lecturer at Harvard Medical School. During her tenure as CEO of the University of Utah Health, she made a name for herself with a bold project identifying the cost of care down to the Band-Aid. Vivian is an MR radiologist who developed novel methods for measuring kidney function and vascular disease with MRI. Last year, Modern Healthcare named her the 11th most influential person in healthcare, and I am proud to say she is a fellow founding member of Women of Impact Healthcare. Vivian is the author of The Long Fix, Solving America's Healthcare Crisis with Strategies that Work for Everyone. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Vivian Lee. Vivian, thanks for joining us today. It's wonderful to be with you. Thank you for having me. And full disclosure, I am a fan and friend of Vivian's. And so it is a special treat for me to have her, the author of The Long Fix, joining us for our podcast today. Why did you decide to write this book? I decided to write The Long Fix because I felt like so many of us within the healthcare world, people like you, Cece, who have devoted your your careers to understanding healthcare, sharing it with others, and then now in the role that you're in, really supporting organizations to, to driving better health and better outcomes, we have collectively a lot of insights and a lot of really wonderful ideas and success stories about how we can fix our healthcare system across the country. The challenge is, as you well know, as a former journalist, in communicating the ideas and really sharing them at a level that is understandable to people to whom this really matters. And I would say that health matters to pretty much everyone. And so that really was my main motivation was I felt that we needed to get the word out a little bit more broadly about our ideas about how to fix healthcare and in a way 
that could be approachable and potentially actually put into practice uh, by people at all levels, whether it's us individually as patients and family members, all the way through those who deliver care or who operate businesses within the healthcare industry to policymakers. And collectively, I think we can work together to really accelerate change and accelerate improvement to the, the betterment of all. And it is certainly striking in the book how you really do zero in on what an expensive and in many cases wasteful healthcare. Talk to me a little bit about what you see as really the, the fundamental flaws in the U.S. approach to health. We are really at, I think, at the tipping point or even almost past the tipping point of a crisis where healthcare is just simply consuming so many resources and not delivering on that investment for this country that is really weighing down our entire nation. And because of that, the, the crisis that we're facing, which is just simply exacerbated by COVID-19, as we can all see, it's really imperative that we understand that at the core of what is wrong with our healthcare system, and there are many, many wonderful things, many wonderful people, many miracles that are happening every day. So I'm in no way trying to discount that. But we do know from the, from the numbers that we are spending two and a half to three times as much as our peers in Europe and Canada, Australia, New Zealand, Japan, and so on. And our overall health outcomes are significantly worse. And the core problem is that our, our business model, the fundamental model of how we operate the business of healthcare is just backwards. It is a fee-for-service model where we are rewarding and incentivizing health systems, physicians, everyone really in the entire enterprise to simply do as much as we can to patients to generate fees. Once we can pivot away from fee-for-service into a system that really embraces value, embraces the idea that we should pay people in healthcare the business of healthcare should be structured around paying for better outcomes, paying for better health. Just now you mentioned value, paying for outcomes. So can you give our listeners an example of where we are currently paying for results? What we're trying to do in paying for results is reward those who are involved in delivering care or impacting people's good health. We want to reward them for better health. Within Medicare Advantage, there are special contracts that the government has made where groups of physicians and other clinicians are paid in a completely different way. So instead of being paid fee-for-service, where every time they see a patient or they do a procedure or they do a lab test, they get paid. Instead, these groups of doctors are paid a fixed amount of money to care for these patients for the year. And the amount that they're paid depends on the underlying health of the individual. So if they have a number of chronic conditions and are, are sicker, they will get paid more for caring for those individuals than somebody who is healthier. But nonetheless, they are paid a fixed amount and it's their responsibility to keep those individuals healthy. They have to meet certain quality expectations, patient satisfaction measures, and those individuals can leave those groups if they're dissatisfied after a year, for example. So they're very motivated to keep people healthy. And what they do with those dollars is really very much a reflection of how we think about paying for 
results. And I should just say one last thing, which is that during the COVID crisis, because they've been paid in this fixed way, what Chris Chen by Chen Med calls the subscription model, they've been much more resilient and much more robust during the COVID crisis. They haven't had to shutter as a result of the pandemic. And so it is also a more robust system. I have to ask you then, given all, you know, your long career in healthcare, your deep research on this book with so many interviews of smart thinkers across the country, why aren't we seeing more pay for results in the U.S. health system today? What is the barrier? When I I remember first going into the wards at the University of Utah, which was in a payer environment that was really almost completely fee-for-service when I arrived there. And on the walls, in the hallways, you know, you have not patient-facing hallways, the sort of inner corridors. We would have charts of our physicians measuring their performance. And anyone from outside of healthcare would hope that those charts might measure things like how many patients' lives did I save? You know, how much, uh, how, how effective was I as a physician? Did my patients respect me and like me and rate me favorably? Actually, the charts were really all about a volume. They were all, were all about how many procedures did I do? How much money did I generate for the hospital? And it was completely based on numbers of things that I did to people with absolutely no measurement of whether it helped the patient whatsoever. If you're living in that world and you have an average margin of two, maybe 3% as a large hospital with huge fixed costs, lots of salaries that you have to pay, huge responsibilities to the community, you're not in a really great environment to A, take risks, and change is a risk. Any kind of significant change is a risk. So you're in an environment which is really and deeply entrenched in an economic model that's very hard to move away from. And it's costly to make those changes as well. And on a related point, I believe you have commented that the silver lining of COVID-19 is that we've seen a rapid shift to alternative ways of caring for people. I'd love for you to just elaborate on that a little bit. And I have to ask, in your view, where telemedicine fits into that big opportunity? Prevention and caring for people at home or at the workplace, not necessarily within the four walls of the clinics or hospitals, that those are more effective ways of caring for people. But because of reimbursement and payment models, we really have been pretty much forced to think about the provision of healthcare primarily in our clinics and our hospitals. And so with the COVID crisis, I do think it has been a silver lining, both with respect to telemedicine and even expanding more into other forms of digital health or mobile health. Um, So some of those barriers have come down now, which make a lot of sense. And also many more physicians are comfortable with telemedicine, which they weren't, I'd say, before the pandemic. They were not, not necessarily as open to trying it. The risk of telemedicine right now is that it falls into the same fee-for-service mindset. But as you note, the COVID-19 crisis probably has every single American thinking a little bit more about their own health, 
their neighbors, and what kind of a system we have and what kind of a system we want. So if we've got some of those wonderful American consumer and patients out there listening to Healthy Dialogue, Vivian, what would you suggest they attempt to do to help move the cause further, so to speak? The first is to listen to all of your podcasts. <laughs> it really is. It's to really become informed. One of the things that I realized when I wrote The Long Fix that hadn't really even fully sunk in for me, even though I've spent my whole life in healthcare, is that the price that we're paying as a nation for healthcare is a price that we are each individually paying. So often we think, oh, you know, we're insured, our insurance company is paying, we might have a $20 copay, but mostly it's being paid by somebody else. Actually, when you really look at the numbers, yes, we are paying those copays and deductibles. Those are now 30% of the overall payment we are actually paying, even if we're covered by our insurer. We're paying through our taxes for Medicare, Medicaid, and other programs. But most importantly, it's actually coming out of our wages. Over the last 50 to 60 years, our wages nationally on average have been flat because most of that money is going to healthcare, even though our economy has grown. So there's at a personal level recognizing that we all have skin in this game. Wow. Well, uh, what a great list from Dr. Vivian Lee. And I'm going to add one more to the list. And that is buy yourself a copy of The Long Fix. Vivian, thank you for joining us on Healthy Dialogue. Thank you so much, Susie. We'll be back with more of ACHP's Healthy Dialogue after a quick message from our sponsor. Altruista Health is committed to serving ACHP health plans as a proud member of the ACHP Corporate Alliance Program. Altruista innovated the guiding care technology platform for the care management of health plan members. As the nation's largest and most widely adopted care management platform, guiding care has the strength and depth to manage care for any member in any setting in any population. Visit their website at altruistahealth.com. We are joined by a good friend of mine, Dr. Steve Perotti of Kaiser Permanente. Steve serves as the Executive Vice President of External Affairs, Communications, and Brand at the Permanente Federation, and he is also an Associate Executive Director for the Permanente Medical Group. In addition to all of that, Dr. Perotti is a practicing infectious disease doctor and is especially busy given our current state. Steve Thank you so much for joining us today on Healthy Dialogue. And it's really good to be with you, Cece, at least virtually. <laughs> Indeed. And we are taping this conversation in early September, and you have been literally on the front lines of the COVID-19 pandemic for so many months now. Can you just try to take a step back and tell us where are we in this? I'm going to call it a saga. You know, Cece, it feels like it was yesterday and then it feels like an eon, to be honest with you. I think that what we have experienced is, of course, unprecedented in our lifetimes. And when I think about the transformation of what healthcare has experienced, it's really incredible. If you go back to February, I mean, we were literally hearing reports about a disease that we really had never experienced that was overseas. And really, this is 
overtaken every single ounce of energy when it comes to the organization that I'm a part of and really within the U.S. I think we have seen a transformation in terms of the type of care that we're providing, whether that's via virtual means, telephonic means, and by email, e-visits, and all of that. And I'm sure we'll get into some detail about that. But I, I think that what we've seen is that we you know, have had ebbs and flows in terms of the amount of disease that's present. We've expanded our hospital capacity capacity in ways that we didn't think were possible before. I think there have been sort of the lessons learned in terms of the need for bolstering our public health infrastructure in ways that, you know, proven to be in sometimes lacking in terms of the ability to respond. And I'd love to have a conversation about how we need to move forward with making that possible. Great. Yes, I do want to get to especially identifying some of those gaps and strategies for filling them. But can you do any bit of a crystal ball or at least least maybe a warning or advising all of our listeners about the next several months this fall and winter as you're preparing for it? Yeah. So when I think about what we're facing, you know, we essentially have a baseline amount of COVID-19 that's circulating in the U.S. right now. We happen to be on a downturn right now. But what I'm talking to at my own organization and to, to others out there is that I do expect to see another wave of COVID-19 because we as a U.S community have not fully adhered to the non-pharmaceutical interventions, the wearing the masks, washing your hands, social distancing. So I, I expect that we may have a spike towards the end of September. And really, October, November is when flu starts to hit. And flu is going to have, you know, of course, many of the similar symptoms that COVID-19 has. And we're going to have to treat everyone who has flu-like symptoms as if they might have COVID-19. And so that's going to create a layer of complexity and actually stress for the healthcare system to be able to respond. What I also am hopeful for is that we have six vaccines that are in the pipeline. And we hope by late December, early January to have some results available and the ability to start putting together a, a campaign to vaccinate. So hopefully we can get a handle on preventing further successive waves of COVID-19. And you mentioned public health infrastructure, and I'm so interested in your perspective in terms of so far during this COVID-19 pandemic, what are some of the gaps that have really been identified and drawn in sharp light throughout this pandemic? So the first thing that comes to mind is the ability to actually have accurate reporting. So actually knowing how many cases we have, where are they located, and have it done in a timely fashion. Because it's a pandemic, the nature of it is that we need to be able to have national, state, and then local level data in a way that allows us to respond quickly. So the next area that I can't emphasize enough is testing. And essentially, we need to be able to ramp up the number of tests that we have available in the United States. One, simply because we need to be able to diagnose people. But secondly, for every person that we diagnose, there are going to be another 10 to 15 people on average that are close contacts that need additional testing. And why is that important? It's going to allow us to reduce the number of cases that are spreading through the community. It'll also allow us to get more people back to work more people back to school safely. It's one of the reasons why Kaiser Permanente has invested in a community health benefit grant to partner with Public Health International to set up contact tracing teams initially in the California region. And I'm glad that you mentioned that because, you know, there's certainly a proper role for government in a crisis such as this. 
But I'd also like to think there are things that the health sector can do. And that's one good example. Do you have other thoughts on how and where the industry can come together and help through this crisis and more importantly, make certain that we're going to have a sustainable system for the future? I think this is a really important point that you're raising, Cece. So I, I think about this on a couple of different levels. So one is the industry has tremendous contacts with the supply chain. And if nothing else, the the need for close coordination for obtaining personal protective equipment and actually just basic medical equipment beyond PPE is incredibly important. And I have seen numerous examples, both at the state level and a little at the federal level, where there have been contacts with private industry, working with HHS, CDC, and then the appropriate state health departments to coordinate those efforts. Because one thing you, you want to avoid here is each of us competing against ourselves for scarce resources. The second thing that I would say is that getting our input into the development and implementation of guidance and guidance all the way from you know, how are you going to handle a surge? How are you going to handle reopening of a particular community? We know our communities and we know where the pain points are, where the risks are. What are the communities that are in distress? Where are the disparities that exist within those communities? And how can we best address them? Because I, the other thing that I think uh, CCL just mentioned here is that this is not just about public health, if you will. Clearly, the connections here with COVID-19. It does, though, I think, lead to another subject I'm interested in, and that is educating the public and what role health organizations can potentially play in getting good, solid, reliable information out, kind of being the trusted sources, if you will. I think it's critically important that the public and actually patients hear directly from their healthcare providers because they do have that inherent trust in their, their providers and, and or their health system. And so how can we get that message out? We, I think, have the opportunity to use any different in all modalities. And so whether that's via social media, it can be by direct mailing or emailing of our memberships, which we have done actually repeatedly. And to do it not just in the midst of a crisis, but to actually keep a steady drumbeat of information that keeps people informed. Because if they don't hear anything, they start making their own conclusions or they go to other sources. And so I, I think that it's incumbent upon us to use any and every modality that we can. Steve, as you know, ACHP conducted a national poll in the summer and we really wanted to get a better understanding of patients and families and how they were thinking about their interactions with the healthcare system. And what we saw then was that 41% of respondents told us they had delayed healthcare services because of the pandemic. And another 38% said that they intend to delay future treatments. Is this tracking with your experience? Do you expect this to continue? You know, it's a real area of deep concern for me. We know a lot more now. We don't know everything, but we know a lot more than what we did in March. And, you know, part of the reason we had to literally shut down much of the in-person care that we were doing was because we were learning. What did we need to do? What were the infection prevention protocols? You know, what were the workflows? How severe was the disease? All of those things. I can tell you that as a health system, we're much better prepared now with that experience 
experience. Uh, having gone through now two surges, we want to be able to bring it back in. And I think we have a real important duty here as a health system to be able to message to our members, our patients, that we are open for business and that if you do need the care and it needs to be in person, that we can do it safely. Even pre-pandemic, Kaiser Permanente was an incredible leader in telehealth. And now we're seeing the rest of the country kind of catching up to you all. But let's talk a little bit about the ability of telehealth to potentially expand access to care. So does telehealth give us some good positive opportunities in the midst of this crisis? Yeah, so I, I think we've really, you know, even though you referenced how we were leaders in, in telehealth, I think that this has accelerated for us the modalities that we can use to take care of patients that I don't think we had ever envisioned to the degree. So just to give you some real quick statistics here. So during the height of the first wave or surge, we had almost 90% of all the primary care visits done virtually and almost 80% of subspecialty care being done virtually and have asked their leads to look at the number of diagnoses that have been seen virtually, which ones have required a revisit after an initial virtual visit, and those that have not required revisits to get a better understanding of what can we do going forward to continue to keep those visits virtual, not even just during the pandemic, but post-pandemic. In terms of primary care, anywhere between 40 and 50 percent of the visits may end up being virtual in the future. The other thing I'll just mention, Cece, this, that we've learned quite a bit about is the real importance of video over audio. Video, you're able to sort of understand a person's expression, their responses to the questions, the level of discomfort that they're having, and even do, and I've done this myself, a virtual walkthrough of a person's home. You, you gain so much more insight and information than even perhaps you would have uh, in a doctor office visit in a traditional setting. Connect the dots on that because I think this is so intriguing that here you are a physician saying you have derived value doing a virtual walkthrough of a patient's home. So what is it that you maybe see or don't see that is meaningful from a clinical perspective? Right. So for example, I want to understand what medications are you taking? If I'm seeing them in the office, I'm typically pulling up my electronic health record. I'm reviewing with the patient in real time. Are you taking this? Are you taking that? Are you taking anything over the counter? Sometimes the person's completely on top of it and they've got their own iPhone out and they're telling you, yep, yep, I'm taking this, this, and this. Others are relying on their own memory. I've had patients where I'm not sure what they're really taking, and they literally go to their kitchen table and they've got their meds listed out there. I had another instance where the patient was having recurrent symptoms of heart failure and finally said, you know what? And it was on video. Can you open up your refrigerator? What do you have in your refrigerator? And, and just show me that. And you know, then we were able to have a, a real discussion about, okay, this is what you should be eating. This is what you should be avoiding. So those are a couple of real quick instances. You can get a sense of, you know, are they hoarding stuff? Does the place look disheveled? I mean, do they need, you know, potentially some social intervention? So there's so much that you can gain 
I, I think of it as not necessarily a replacement, but definitely an adjunct to the practice that I have. So fascinating. It's a new twist on a home visit. That's right. And so I, I want to close, Steve, where we began, which is that you really are such a renowned infectious disease expert. And I just wonder if from your perspective, have we entered an age of you know, deadly viruses are with us? You know, it's a great question. I think that what we're witnessing here is a changing in the ecology of the earth. I don't think that's overstated. Depending on where people are moving, where they're living, what animals they're around, you know, whether the weather's heating up, it's literally changing the number of exposures that individuals and people are are having with these various infectious diseases. I think that you're onto something in the sense that we need to have a system that allows us to surveil better for new and emerging pathogens. And there are a number of organizations that have begun to do that work where you actually are essentially searching for or monitoring for new and emerging disease. And certainly, I think if nothing else, this pandemic has shown us that there is a need for greater preventative approaches so that, you know, the economic devastation, the personal and healthcare related devastation can be avoided in the future. Well, Steve, I just have to say on behalf of ACHP and everyone at Healthy Dialogue, We want to thank you for all of this important work and for chatting with us today, Dr. Steve Perotti. Thank you, Cece, for having me. Before we go any further, Cece needs a minute. So let's tally up today's conversation. We've got a pandemic. Bad. We have healthcare companies creatively solving problems in ways that could have some staying power beyond the health crisis. Good. but. We've got this fatal addiction, fee-for-service medicine, and that prevents us from really advancing the kind of reforms that would lead to better health, higher quality of care, and affordability for patients and purchasers. Really bad. Now, we at ACHP have long viewed fee-for-service as problematic because of the perverse incentives. But the COVID-19 outbreak shined a particularly harsh spotlight on its flaws. And so we seem to be stuck on the bad because the appetite for overhauling fee-for-service vacillates somewhere between, oh, lip service and, hey, let's do a pilot. In our conversation today and in her book, Vivian articulates these failings so well, it almost feels like I'm piling on here. But it's my minute, so I'm piling. In Vivian's words, it's time we start paying for results. I really like that phrase. I think I need to steal it. Because until we end this addiction, Americans will be stuck paying for more care rather than better care. And that's bad. Before we wrap up episode one, season one of Healthy Dialogue, let me give you a little preview of what to expect when you hit the subscribe button on your podcast. And please do. You'll be hearing a lot more ideas about reforming healthcare, and not just in the philosophical wonky sense, but in the very practical sense, real patients and real solutions. We'll be talking to physicians, researchers, CEOs, lawmakers, journalists, all the people 
who will help us shape the way forward. You'll meet some of the terrific members of our team at ACHP. And since this is a year that you can divide by four, we'll definitely talk about the upcoming election. Sigh. But not because we're political junkies, but because the election will affect everyday Americans in ways large and small. On the next installment of Healthy Dialogue, we'll talk with Florida Congresswoman and former Secretary of Health and Human Services, Donna Shalala, as well as Intermountain Healthcare CEO, Mark Harrison. I hope you'll join us. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Healthy Dialogue. Learn more about the Alliance of Community Health Plans at ECHP.org and click the Add to Contacts button to connect directly with our team. We hope you'll also find us on Twitter at underscore ACHP and on LinkedIn. And if you liked today's episode, don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. Reviews help new listeners find our podcast and hopefully spur more healthy dialogue out there.